I've travelled the length and breadth of Ireland in furtherance of the well-tempered clavier. My piano tuning has ranged from between encouraging the more aristocratic instruments in the major music festivals to the bad-tempered members of the breed in some unlikely places. The venue which intrigues me most was Ars Anuktaran, for obvious reasons, and my first visit there was when Shantia Kelly was president. As you can imagine, my visits there were always strictly by appointment. At that time, I was employed by McCullough's of Dawson Street as a piano tuner, and I was asked to go and vet a Beckstein Boudoir Grand piano in the private residence of G.A. Britain. They owned the car assembly works at that time at Portobello Bridge in Ratmines. But that is to jump ahead because before the presidential era I can claim an association with two governors general, Tim Healy and Don Lobokla. The first governor general was of course Tim Healy and I would presume to say that we both proud of having been born in Bantry in West Cork, a beautiful part of Ireland and indeed anywhere in the world for that matter. When growing up in Bantry I was given to understand that Tim Healy was born in a place called Rose Cottage on Blackrock Road in Bantry. However, I wasn't far short of the mark because Tim Healy's uncle, T.D. Sullivan, lived there. Thanks to Sheila Harrington, I now know that he was born in a house in Wolfton Square in Bantry. It is now the Bank of Ireland. A plaque to his memory was unveiled on that building some years ago by a former Chief Justice, Mr. T.F. O'Higgins, which is very appropriate because T.F. O'Higgins is a great nephew of the first Governor General. The plaque reads Tim Healy, KC, Nationalist MP from 1880 to 1918 and the first Governor General of the Irish Free State was born in this house in 1855. Tim Healy was one of eight Irish members of Parliament at Westminster all born in and around Bantry. They were elected to seats in Munster, Leinster and even in Ulster. An extraordinary achievement by any standard for a small country town and its environs. He was a part of a newly emerging nationalist middle class. He became a member of Parliament at Westminster at the age of 25 and remained one until 1918. During that time he was called to the Irish Bar and later to the English Bar and became King's Counsel. He became a particularly adept and fearless barrister as well as politician. One case of which he is still held in great esteem in West Cork concerned the eviction of a local farmer called uh, McGrath. His rent had been doubled 
and the man was unable to meet the commitment. With the result that along with his family, he was forced to live under an upturned boat at the seashore. The unfortunate farmer t took his change of fortune very badly and he died. We are told that the last rites were administered by a clergyman from under a rain-soaked umbrella. The widow and family tried to repossess their home and were arrested. This so enraged Healy that he denounced the whole episode at a political meeting in Bantry. He in turn was arrested and returned for trial. But later the case was thrown out of court. If you include Castleton Bear, you could say West Corp produced uh, 10 members of Parliament between 1874 and 1918. They were, let me see now, James Gilhooley. Indeed, in my boyhood days, there was a hall in Bantry near the railway station known as the Gilhooley Hall. The two Harrington brothers from Castleton Bear, William Martin Murphy, the same William Martin Murphy who as far as the Dublin working people are concerned would be quite infamous due to the 1913 lockout on the tramways. He founded the Irish Independent in 1905 and the Sunday Independent in 1906, just two years before I was born. There were three Healy brothers, Thomas, Morris and of course Timothy. And finally there were the O'Sullivan brothers, Alexander, Donald Baylor, let, let me see now, and uh, Timothy Daniel Sullivan. They were collectively known as the Bantry Band. T.D. Sullivan was Tim Healy's uncle and to a large extent his mentor. This close relationship was to be further enhanced when he became Healy's father-in-law. He was a Lord Mayor of Dublin as well as being a poet, a journalist and a newspaper proprietor. He wrote the song God Save Ireland in honour of the Manchester Martyrs. But, as splendid as that song may be, and noble is dedication, I have always assorted T.D. Sullivan's music with the American Civil War. On the eve of the Battle of Fredericksburg, both sides, north and south, were united briefly and poignantly when they sang another of O'Sullivan's songs, Ireland Boys Hurrah. There were Irish regiments on both sides in the American Civil War. The only one I know to have taken part in the Battle of Fredericksburg was the New York Militia, which became known as the Fighting 69th. I know this because of the visit of another president to Dahl Aaron in 1963. That president was, of course, President John F. Kennedy. 
During the course of his address to the Dáil, President Kennedy unveiled his and America's gift of an old battle flag of the Fighting 69th. And among the battles on that flag is Fredericksburg. The flag is on display in Dáil Éireann. I ever wish that the Irish on both sides at Fredericksburg might have been singing an apology to one another on the night before the following day's carnage. After Tim Healy, the next Governor-General in the Viceregal Lodge, as it was known then, was James McNeil, who in turn was followed by Donald O'Bukla. Donald O'Bukla never resided in the park. It was said at the time, in 1932, when de Valera removed McNeil from office and put in Donald O'Bukla in his place, that O'Bukla was a stopgap holder of the office. He never took part in any public functions that I was aware of, whether that was his personal preference or a political decision, was never clear. He was a very quiet and reserved man. I met him on the occasions when I went to tune the piano in his house when he was living at Sloperton Road in Monkstown. The house is now demolished, of course, and apartments built where it stood. He sported a small goatee beard, I remember, which imparted an artistic or academic impression. In my generation, he would be remembered because of Easter 1916. He marched at the head of a small group of volunteers from Anuth to join the insurrection in Dublin. They came along the railway line to Broadstall, I believe. As the rendering of his name would indicate, Donald O'Bukla was an enthusiastic supporter of the Irish language. An incident directly connected to his enthusiasm has stuck in my mind. You might consider it funny. If the time when it took place had not been so small-minded and bitter, 
he was arrested for having his name in Irish on the side of a cart. Hard to believe, but he was sent for trial. It must have been before 1916 because his defendant counsel was Patrick Pierce. They won their case. There is still an Obukla business house in Minute today, run by a grandson, Joe Obukla. Incidentally, there is a bust of Donald Obukla in Arasanukran. It is in a passageway with the busts of the presidents. 1938 was the transition year between the era of the Governors-General and the era brought about by the introduction of the new constitution, the presidential era. The first president of Ireland was Douglas Hyde. He served from, let me see, 1938 to uh, 1945. He was one of the founder fathers of the Gaelic League. And in that regard, at least, the titular heads of the old regime and the new had something in common, a love of the Irish language. It is perhaps a curiosity that the new head of state should have been a patrician academic and a son of the rectory. His access card was undoubtedly the Gaelic League. He was the one president I never actually met. I do, however, claim a slight, not to say tenuous connection, in that the wife of the fifth president, Carolo Darling, whom I did meet, had as her tutor at UCD, Douglas Hyde. Mrs. O'Dalek spoke very warmly about our first president. When Douglas Hyde's term of office ended in 1945, Sean T. O'Carley was elected second president. And as I explained earlier, my first connection with Aris Nukran was through the purchase of a boudoir grand piano for the Aris. At that time, I worked as a piano tuner in McCullough's at Dawson Street. The head of the firm was a Belfast man, Dennis McCullough, who left Belfast after the pogrom in that city in 1919. When he first came to Dublin, he opened a music business in Parliament Street and later transferred to Dawson Street. But he hadn't any better luck in Dublin to begin with because he was bombed out of his premises in Dawson Street. That was a few years before I joined the firm. He married one of the Ryan girls of Tom Cool in Tamun, County Wexford. And Sean T. O'Callig married another girl of the same family. They became brothers-in-law. Two further of the Ryan sisters married well-known men of that time. Uh, General Richard Mulcahy, Sergeant Michael O'Malley of Galway. There was another sister in the Loretto Order on Stephen's Green, Sister Stanislaus. Not Loretto College now, Loretto Hall. She was the superior in charge of that. And of course, Dr. Jim Ryan was another member of the family. He in turn became Minister for Health and Agriculture. Yes, I think Agriculture. And then Minister for Finance. Getting back to, the, to President O'Callaghan, when his first wife died, 
he married yet another of the Ryans, Phyllis Ryan, who was the youngest of the Ryan family. She, at the time, was a state analyst. The piano which I went to vet for Aris was in a house in Avoca Avenue in Blackrock in Dublin. It was the private residence of Britons. They had a car assembly works at Portobello Bridge in Ratmines. Actually, I can remember the name of the house. It was Tanrigo, and it is there to the present day. On occasions when I was in Arison Ultron and tuning the Beckstein Boudoir Grand Piano, which we had purchased, and President O'Carney would pass by, he'd just casually come over and say, How are you? And how is Dinny? The reference to Dinny was to Mr. Dennis McCullough of McCullough's Music Shop, his brother-in-law. The piano was not used for recitals as such, but was used on social occasions. It was well known that President O'Carlig had a good voice and took part in singing on those occasions. While, as I said, there were no formal recitals in Arisenuthran during President O'Carlig's tenure, he knew many musicians and indeed on a visit to Paris he met with Geraldine O'Grady who was studying violin there at the time. When I went to Paris at the age of 16, it was a very traumatic time in my life because I had never actually spent a night away from home before. And of course, I was very lonely. I stayed in a hostel near the Parc Monceau, which was run by some wonderful Irish nuns. One of these, Sister Loyola, was a special friend. And it was she, actually, who brought me to the Irish Embassy on the occasion of the state visit by Sean T. O'Kelly to Paris. And um, I was delighted. It was a great outing for me and I had been looking forward to it for ages. But when I was introduced to um, the president, he greeted me very kindly and then said, Oh, sweet Rosie O'Grady. And of course, that made my day and my night. It was a, a wonderful occasion for a young person, lonely, far away from home. I met him again at the other end of my study period, about five years later, when I gave my coming out recital in the Aberdeen Hall of the Gresham Hotel. It was attended by most of the diplomatic corps and Sean T. O'Kelly. And it was a major event, another major event in my life, really. I gave a recital there with Jenny Redden and I included, of course, some of our own Irish melodies. I enjoy playing them so much. And one of the pieces was the Coolin. Thank you. 
The third president was Eamon de Valera. He was first elected in 1959 and served two terms of office. Before that, I had tuned the, the piano for them when they lived on Cross Avenue in Booterstown in County Dublin. On many occasions there, I met with Ban de Valera, a very nice lady, and uh, she was quite witty because I remember on one occasion she said she loved the Dublin people because they were so friendly and they loved, they, I remember her saying they loved a good hoodie. Uh, Flanagan was her maiden name. Terry de Valera was the famous in the house. Uh, he retired some years ago as taxing master in 1992. In the artists during some tuning sessions, De Valera often chatted about old times. He would hear the piano being tuned because he had his office quite close to it, you might say, in an adjacent room. And as I said, we often chatted about old times. It came, of course, inevitably it came to around to uh, Easter week, 1916, and he spoke of <laughs> how they obtained entry into Boland's Bakery. And uh, that, that was in, in Grand Canal Street. And it, uh, it turned on between Grand Canal Street and what is now Mackin Street. But uh, I remember him telling me of how they managed to gain entry. He said he, don't, I, he, he didn't know where they came from, but he said somebody provided a mule. And... 
each in turn got a hoosh over the over the wall and into the bakery. He actually used that term, a hoosh, and they proceeded to sandbag themselves in with bags of flour. They, of course, they were also up at uh, at Mount Street Bridge, uh, what was Huey Motors. In speaking of the, uh, of that occasion when they went into uh, Boland's Bakery, uh, Dev asked me, what was the name of the street? I said, it's Mackin Street. He said, it wasn't Mackin Street when we went into it. No, I said, the name of the street then was Clarence Street. You're the first person to tell me that, he said. Another connection I had with Steve Valera was in connection with a plaque which has been erected on the wall at Boland's Bakery. Uh, I became involved in it through Marcin McCullough of, of McCullough's music. And uh, he was on the board of management in Boland's at the time. Redmond Murphy was the managing director. They decided that something should be done to commemorate the 1916 rise in, in Boland's bakery. So it, it was decided to uh, have a commemorative plaque made for that particular occasion. And uh, Mr. McCulloch was involved mostly with regard to the, to the Irish, that what Irish would be used, what to make sure that everything was correctly done. And through himself and another gentleman whose name escapes me at the moment, I was given the job of going to the artists with with the, with the different uh, drafts of the, of the lettering or wording, the different drafts, and uh, that's how I used I used to meet De Valera there again, this time in his office. Uh, that plaque was unveiled by President De Valera on Friday, April the fifteenth, nineteen sixty-six, as the fiftieth commemoration of the Easter Rising, at the site of the Boland's Bakery, not the mills. Among the guests on that uh, occasion was an uh, English officer, Captain E.J. Hitson, the man to whom the President had surrendered after the rising. The last time I met Eamon de Valera was on a social occasion. And it came about through my friendship with the Christian brothers at Western Row. Brother Gilmore was the brother superior at the time. And to uh, commemorate their 100 years anniversary, they decided to have a concert in Francis Xavier Hall in Sheridan Street. So when it came at the time, I think Brother Gilmore became rather apprehensive about meeting uh, President de Valera. And he actually asked me if I would do the honours, seeing that I had that I had known him. So uh, I did. They had the red carpet out, and when the limousine came along with him and De Valera and Ban De Valera, I welcomed them both to the hall, and introduced them to Brother Gilmore. Also, about uh, at that time, Mary Sheridan told me that she was invited to Aris Lutheran prior to an American tour. Yes, 1964. It was September 1964. That was my first trip to the United States. 
and it was uh, brought about through Fred O'Donovan and uh, Columbia Festival Artists. I tell you who used to be there too, Frank Murphy, because Frank, of course, he'd be looking after the musical end for us. We had the Garda Band, which was conducted by Superintendent Joe Maloney, and we had also a Ballyfermot Boys Band, which was conducted by Brother Cyprian. And he came to America too, because of course he had to take care of the boys. And we had the O'Connell Girls Pipe Band from London. We had a group of dancers, uh, which were doing Irish dancing, but in actual fact, they were members of the Royalettes. And also we had Patrick O'Hagan, the tenor, God rest him, he's God now, Patrick, and Bill McMahon, bass, and uh, and myself. We were the three soloists. And uh, there was a great tall guard in front, Matt Cosgrave. I think Matt now has gone to the higher echelons in the police force. Anyway, before we went to the States, we had this meeting in Orson Uchtoron to meet President de Valera. Of course, we got all dressed up in our best bib and tucker. There was uh, myself and Fred and uh, Brother Cyprian and Patrick O'Hagan and Bill and the soloists, that was it, and Superintendent Maloney. Well, we met Devalier, we just all stood around like... It was really cold and impersonal, I must say that. They, uh, we weren't asked if we had a mouth on us. You know, normally if you go to a reception you get a cup of tea or a biscuit or, an, or a glass of sherry or something. Well, there was nothing. I, I'd, I'd sung for De Valera years before that, when I was uh, about 16. I was doing Messiah with Our Ladies, uh, and we were doing it in Kerry's Fort, and I remember De Valera was guest of honour there, because he had connection with it. I think he was a teacher there, a maths teacher. I got my, bought myself a hat, you know, me with a hat, and all that hair up on my head. But the hat was lovely, and I was dressed in a, a Persian lamb coat and all. And as I say, perished we were, and we weren't given a cup of tea. That's the highlight of that in the States. Our first appearance was in Madison Square Gardens. Now, that was the old one because it's all been renewed now, you know. 22,000 people. The finale was very, very colourful. We were in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, 17,000 there. We were in Washington, of course. I must tell you a story about the Washington one. They were all out in this huge stadium and all of a sudden, didn't the zipper go on my white frock? Now, those nylon zippers are just the pits. And I said, oh, dear God. And I went out, and there was this little chap outside called Julius. Now, he had the blackest, shiniest face, the biggest eyes you ever saw. And I said, Julius, can you give me a hand here? What is it, ma'am? He says. I said, I need you to pin me into my frock. So I had these three huge safety pins, and he pinned me in the back, you know, and he's standing behind me. And then he puts his head out, you know, to the side, and he, I was snow shiny white and he was jet black shiny face and I said well what a picture you know is that all right ma'am he says to me I said Julius you're a little angel you know and I went out with my chiffons hanging over my three big safety pins and my tiara and all I always do say say well God bless the man who invented safety pins we oh, returned man. in November we had an invitation to go to see the then ambassador of America who was Raymond Guest. It was a different kettle of fish when we got there. We had a beautiful dinner, great atmosphere, warmth and all. It was lovely. Now, on that tour I had lovely pieces of music. Danny Boy 
of course, it was the pièce de résistance, as they say, for the American Irish. And that was arranged by Superintendent Maloney. And uh, we made a recording, actually, of the show before we went away to America. Columbia Artists made a recording here in Dublin. I think I sang three pieces. I sang The Last Rose of Summer. And then I had a quick little piece, Oscar Elga, uh, Pat en Vuir. And that was arranged by the late, lovely Eamon O'Gallagher, you know. And I used to give them a translation of what it was all about. And I remember it was Matt, the big guard, Matt Cosgrave, Matt who, who gave me the translation for it, because he was a great Irish speaker. We wanted to uh, project a real up-to-date picture of Ireland. And I, I think it, it, it really did come off. In 1973, the next president was Erskine Childers, a very cultured, cultivated man, very interested in music, as was his wife. I mentioned way back about the Beckstein piano, which at the time was in residence. Erskine Childers decided to have some recitals, and it became necessary to get a more suitable piano. Consequently, a Steinway full concert ground was hired. And I remember well the very first concert. It was given by John O'Connor. Yes, I was invited up by Erskine Childers to do a recital in Horace and Oak Thron in October 1974. Um, it was very exciting in a way because uh, to a normal Dublin or a normal Irish person, actually getting inside the gates of the Auris was, was something you never expected to happen. It was rather like Buckingham Palace, but in those days it was very, seemed very remote and very austere and, and 
um, it was a great honour, I felt, to be invited to give a recital in, in Oris and Othron. And particularly, I think, for my parents to be invited up to, I mean, they were thrilled to be there and the rest of my family. And I suppose they invited about maybe a hundred, over a hundred people and um, very informal. They were asked, not, no black tie or anything, and they brought up a piano especially from McCullough Pickett's a big time so I could play on. I introduced the programme. Um, it was included things like Beethoven Bagatelles and Schumann Papillon. And um, I mean, President Childers and Mrs. Childers, I mean, they were incredibly gracious. Um, they welcomed everybody. They, they sat down. It was very much uh, almost the way recitals used to be in the time of Franz Josef or when Mozart and Beethoven were doing it. I mean, this was a, a palatial home. It was a beautiful home. Um, this was the, the sort of the, the dignitaries who lived there. And uh, they invited up, except they weren't lord and ladies, but, but normal people. And, and uh, it was extremely nice. I remember Mary McGarris was writing for the Irish Independent and she wrote um, a lovely article about the whole evening, uh, which tended to sort of dismiss the fact that I'd played the piano very much and talked about the carpet a lot, <laughs> how beautiful it was. But um, I mean, it was really nice. Uh, they they um, invited people to have a glass of wine afterwards and, and I think the cheese and biscuits and that sort of thing. There were some people who carped and said, um, you know, the least you could have got was a supper and sandwiches and, and, you know, gin and vodka and that sort of thing. But I often wondered, I mean, did they actually have a budget for that or was he paying for it out of his own pocket? Um, because in those days, the idea of presidents sort of entertaining in their house and inviting in the people to see the house that basically we pay for from our taxes was, was, was very unusual. And I think Gerson Childers tried to, to begin to, to bring in the normal people, and I admired him tremendously for that. I was, you know, shocked um, when he died, and uh, often was delighted to see uh, Rita Childers at my recitals thereafter and made a particular point of talking to her, because it was a... I mean, to, to an ordinary Irish fellow who never would have got into Oris Northorn, it was, it was a momentous occasion to be asked to play there. I was very honoured, and I was delighted to do it. Unfortunately... Erskine Childers' reign was very short and it was a great loss to the arts. He had planned so much. Fortunately, he was succeeded by an equally cultivated man, Carulo Dolly, who came to office in 1974. He continued with concerts in Aris on Oakdron. He was a great man to chat with. And I met him on several occasions in my duties of looking after the piano. And indeed, on many occasions, he would order homemade scones and tea, and we'd sit together chatting. I also met him at the Bach festivals in Killarney. He was a homely gentleman. You'd really like to meet him. In fact, Geraldine O'Grady received an unexpected telephone call from President O'Darlick one day. One evening I was in the house on my own, in the kitchen actually, cooking dinner, when the phone rang. When I answered it, this gentle voice said, Carol O'Dolly speaking. And he said, I'm just ringing to know if you and Des would be free to come to dinner. And he mentioned today. Well, of course, I was amazed <laughs> at the phone call coming directly from the president. No secretaries involved. And of course, we were both delighted to accept. It was a lovely evening. Mr and Mrs O'Dolly were so natural and friendly. 
Um, they created a lovely atmosphere, really family atmosphere. I remember Siobhan McKenna was one of the guests. Of course, Carul O'Dolly was a great supporter of the arts. He used to attend concerts regularly and very often when Des was playing in the theatre, he would give him a ring and say that he would come down in the evening and he would slip into the back. He, he never wanted any fuss. There was no ceremony attached to him at all. He really is a great loss. He was such a gentle and a lovely man. I remember how outraged and upset I felt when I heard of his resignation from the presidency and the incident that um, led up to this. In fact, the moment is imprinted in my memory because I was on tour in the United States at the time and just about to give a recital in Miami when there was this news flash on television. I found it hard to understand how anyone could be so rude to this gentleman who had brought such dignity to the office. That was a, a terrible thing that I, uh, you know, he was so honour bound by the Constitution and by the, um, his legal training and all the rest of it that when he was so shocked by um, the thundering disgrace remarks and I can, uh, having met him, I can quite understand that he wouldn't mind if somebody called him all the names in the world but the fact that somebody uh, who is Minister of the Government would um, despise the office of the President of our country was just unthinkable to him, and that's why he resigned. And I had enormous respect for him because of that. Carol O'Dolly and his wife Maureen, they came to uh, some concerts of mine. Uh, they, I remember them coming once to, to um, the, the Gaiety when I was playing with the Symphony Orchestra, and to the RDS, I think it was, when I was playing there. Um, and they invited... Mary and I up for afternoon tea one afternoon, which was very nice indeed. I remember Jared Victory was also there that evening. And they conversed in French, which I was extremely impressed in both their French. Um, but of course, Carol O'Dolly had lived in, wasn't it, Luxembourg? He was uh, there for a while. And um, he and Maureen were just wonderful hosts. I mean, they were just uh, fantastic. They were, there was no aloofness about them. They were just normal people chatting away to other normal people. And um, you were aware of the dignity of his office and treated him with extraordinary respect. But he treated you with, with um, equal respect for what you did, which was, was very flattering, naturally. Um, but his wife was, was just gorgeous. And I remember after, after he died, I mean, we went, met her a few times down in Kerry. And she was equally charming and equally lovely. In a way, Carol O'Dolly's um, stand for the dignity of the Office of President of the, of the Irish Republic, um, created a precedent which has given the office the respect that maybe it, it's not that it didn't have before, but people really didn't take it all that seriously, and I think they did after that. When I, when I first met him, he asked me about the format of the, of the previous concerts, so I was able to give him an insight into that. Among those who gave recitals in Carol O'Dalek's uh, time, Veronica McSweeney's recital was a very memorable one because she was being sponsored by the Russian ambassador for a tour of Soviet Russia. Well, it all really started when I recorded um, all 18 of the John Field Nocturnes in 1972. And um, shortly after that, Anatoly Kaplan uh, was the Russian ambassador 
in Dublin at, at the time and he was a, a very keen musician and he in fact heard my recording of the field and unknown to me he sent my double album across to Moscow and the result of it was I was invited to go to Russia for a concert tour not not just Russia the whole of the USSR and of course I was very very excited about it and I think people in in Ireland generally were and President O'Dolly um, was so excited about the whole thing that he in, in fact invited me to come up to Orson Uthron and give a recital and he invited all the various ambassadors from the different embassies around, uh, around the city. I found Carol O'Dolly, a fantastic man I must say, uh, very friendly, very down to earth and tremendously interested in, in what I, I was doing. I remember the day before the recital arriving up to Orson Uthron because he invited me to come and rehearse and I went in in the afternoon and I remember being ushered in by a gentleman. And in no time, uh, President O'Dolly arrived and invited me to have some tea with himself and his wife. And one was very excited about the prospect of where I was going, etc. He took a c- tremendous interest. And the following day, when I was doing the recital, he it was it was his idea that I should come up to Orson Uthron early in the afternoon have a little play on the, on the Steinway and he had a flat which I presume I don't know whether it was for relatives of his or whether, whether it was for visiting dignitaries or whoever who stayed at Orson Uthron but I had access to this lovely apartment once I had finished my practice so as I could go away and rest and then uh, he laid on a meal for me before the, the people started arriving for the, for the recital it was it was a, a wonderful evening I remember and they gave me a, a terrific send off because in a, in a matter of days I left for my first uh, recital in Moscow. The tour was about sixteen to eighteen days altogether. Um, I I know I played in the Baltic some of the Baltic cities on that particular occasion. My, my recitals in fact started now that I remember I flew to Moscow, but my first recital took me to the Ukraine to um, Poltava as far as I can remember and a place called Cherkasy and I went up to Moscow I went to Vilnius in Lithuania the programme I played was um, the four impromptus of Franz Schubert the first book of impromptus I played a Beethoven sonata the Opus 31 number 3 in E flat and I played the Debussy suite Estampe then the second half started with John Field of course I played um, the sonata in A major and three of the of the nocturnes. Uh, the one in A major, if my memory serves me right, the one in F major and the one in E major, one of the, the later ones. Um, I really was very anxious to go to visit John Field's grave. It was the month of December, I remember. It was freezing cold. I mean, we arrived in something like 30 below, you know, when we arrived in Moscow for the first time. Everything, of course, was covered in snow. But I found it, and I have some rather strange-looking photographs of me hanging out of of this gravestone. You can clearly see the, uh, you know, the little tribute to, to John Field. He did a lot for me, did John Field.
President Karur or Dali resigned the presidency in 1976, October 1976. He was succeeded by Dr. Patrick Hillary. President Hillary seemed to be uh, a rather distant type of man. I say, well, it seemed to be, because uh, on many occasions when I was tuning the piano and if he happened to pass by, he would just give a nod. He would never stop for the chat, like many of the other presidents. An incident which would seem to contradict that, I remember on an occasion in the, uh, in the RDS, where I used to attend there, uh, look after the piano for many, many years, and President Hillary and Miss, Mrs. Hillary would come quite often to these recitals. But I remember the, uh, this particular occasion uh, when he came to the interval and we all stood up in respect as they were, uh, they were uh, go going out to, to the restaurant. As, as he came to me, he actually stopped and, and gave me a nod. Despite his aloofness, he did seem to be a very courteous man. Mrs. Hillary, like her husband, was also a medical doctor. I got to know her quite well, and uh, uh, actually she was instrumental in getting a brand new Steinway grand piano for the artists. The Beckstein, which I had vetted and looked after for so many years, had seen its best days, so it was decided to replace it with a brand new instrument. They also had a baby grand in, in the living apartment, which I used to look after for their daughter. Mrs. Henry asked me <laughs> to encourage one of the girls to practice, but I don't think she liked the look of me because when she knew I was coming along, she couldn't be found. President Henry went abroad on a number of state visits. John O'Connor had the distinction of being invited to accompany him on two of them. One was to Denmark and one was to Vienna. Um, you know, having studied in, in penury in Vienna, to go back and suddenly be staying in these very nice hotels and, and uh, dining in these wonderful apartments showed me a totally different side of Vienna than when I'd been a student there. But in both of the visits, I mean, Paddy Hillary was just wonderful and um, he was constantly thinking about everybody. I mean, it, it was sort of... Once or twice he came over to me and said, is everything all right, is the piano all right, are you feeling comfortable, is, you know, are you feeling good, and everything, you know, that sort of thing. And even the journalists were saying that, you know, he'd be walking along with them and uh, ahead with the, with the president and they'd be preparing something, he'd come back to the journalists and say, everything all right, do you need to meet anybody, do you want to talk to anybody? I mean, they absolutely adored him and, uh, I mean, would make all the time in the world for him. And then when we invited him, when I was starting the International Piano Competition in Dublin, the, the GPA competition, um, we invited Paddy to be patron, and he immediately wrote back and said yes, um, providing he was in the country. And it so happened, I think, that he, they were on a Chinese tour, and he suddenly realised that to get back in time, he meant he would have to leave, you know, the, the minute the state tour was finished, and not relax on the way home, but come galloping home to Dublin to present the prizes on television at the final. And he did it. And, um, I mean, Maeve was, I think, exhausted at that stage and stayed somewhere en route on the way home, but Paddy came back and uh, made the presentation. And, I mean, he must, have been, he must have been falling asleep on his feet. He must have been so exhausted. I know that flight. It's appalling. 
And yet he seemed as bright as a button and as though there wasn't a care in the world. He was just fantastic. And I always admired him tremendously for that. The other uh, state visit I was on was, was when we went to Denmark. What they do is that they, the first night, the host country invites the president to a dinner and shows off some cultural side of theirs, their, their country. And the following night, the Irish president hosts a dinner and shows some cultural side of the Irish country. And I was invited to play a short piano recital. And I was actually at the, the table of the Prince Consort and his brother. And um, they asked me beforehand what I was going to play. And I said, Field Nocturnes. And they said, fine. And something else. And I sat down and I played Field Nocturnes. And they came back. And the Prince Consort, you know, the, the, who's the husband of the Queen, uh, said, you are very naughty. And I said, pardon? And I thought, what have I done now? And we were just about to start dinner. And he said, you changed your program. And I said, no, I didn't. He said, you played Chopin Nocturnes. And I said, no, I didn't. They were field nocturnes. And his brother said, I win my bet. <laughs> because they had a, seemingly a large bet on it. And the brother said he wouldn't do such a thing. And the Prince Consort said, I know my piano music, and that's not whatever this Irish composer is. So I had to tell him the whole story. And they were fascinated. And I subsequently sent him a copy of the John Field Nocturnes um, so that he could play them for himself. He was quite a good pianist. Kyo, daughter of Des Kyo and Geraldine O'Grady, played for President Hillary on the occasion of the state visit to Ireland of the King and Queen of Spain in the Royal Hospital, Kilmainham.
1986 and um, I was asked to play at the um, state banquet for the King and Queen of Spain. They had come over and uh, it was a big dinner and it was in Kilmainham. And there were a lot of very important politicians present. There was um, Garrett Fitzgerald, who was um, the Taoiseach at the time, and Charlie Hawhey, and of course, President and Mrs. Hillary were there. And I was very excited because, you know, I was only 19. So if I went along not really knowing what to expect, I performed anyway. I played three Irish pieces, and one of them was a Spanish piece. So I got a very nice reception. They seemed to enjoy it and everything. So then afterwards I went backstage and I thought that was it. I was expecting to just go off home and the next thing somebody comes running around and said, oh, Queen Sophia wants to meet the violinist. So I was all excited. I was like, oh God, where do I go? So they sort of took me in the bowels of Kilmainham all around the way around to the front and I was running in my long dress and everything. And we arrived at the front and I nearly practically skidded to a halt in front of the whole party that had been waiting for me especially to come out. And I nearly forgot to curtsy. I'd been sort of warned that, you know, if I did meet her, and the king I was at, I would have to curtsy. So um, anyway, it was all sort of a bit of a blur, really. But President Hillary was there, and he he was he was quite nice, really. But then he said, uh, "Well, were you were you shy?" And I think what he meant was, "Were you nervous?" And I immediately blurted out, "No, no, I wasn't, not at all." You know, and I got a feeling that was the wrong answer. You know, <laughs> it didn't sort of lead to anything. But uh, anyway, they were terribly nice, the king and queen, and they said they really enjoyed the performance and everything. And that was really it. And off I went. It all happened so fast. The pieces I played, um, the Spanish piece was um, um, Jota. It was um, a piece by Defia, Manuel Defia. And I think I played The Last Rose of Summer. And I can't really remember what else I played. <laughs> it was um, another Irish piece anyway. But it was sort of really a mixture, and I put in the one Spanish piece because I thought they'd appreciate the, uh, <laughs> the, sort of the mixture, yeah. In November 1990, Mary Robinson was elected president. She is our first lady president, and I think most people would agree that she has brought a wider sense of scale to the office. A number of music associations have been honoured to have her as patron. The Dublin Grand Opera Society being one of them, or as it is now called, Opera Ireland. The Irish Chamber Orchestra in Limerick is another which has been honoured. Fenula Hunt is its director. Two years ago in 1995 the Irish Chamber Orchestra relocated to the University of Limerick and at that time um, members of the board came together and discussed who we should try to get as a patron for the orchestra. After lengthy discussion it was decided that Mary Robinson would be a wonderful candidate because of her great interest in music and because she is such a wonderful public person and she's been a great supporter of the orchestra ever since. President Robinson has met the orchestras of the Royal Irish Academy of Music and the College of Music in Dublin. John O'Connor was responsible for arranging the meetings. President Robinson, come to think of it, 
is also patron of the Dublin International Piano Competition. I think she is trying to be a president for all the people, not just Manon Aaron. And uh, I think it's tremendous the pace she has set herself. I haven't actually been in the park since, since she became president, but she has remained as patron of the Dublin International Piano Competition and came to present the prizes in 1991, saying to me, you know, you will tell me exactly what to do. And I said, yes, and she was superb. And then in 1994, she came back and almost said, I'm an old trooper, I know exactly what's happening tonight, and was wonderful with the jury. They were extraordinarily impressed to meet her. And also, uh, in 1994, the Royal Irish, I'd just taken over as director of the Royal Irish Academy of Music, and we invited her to attend the Gala Centenary Concert in the National Gallery. And we had chosen, I think it was 12 students from around the country doing a variety of items. And she arrived, and as soon as the concert was over, I had them um, assembled in a room. I mean, they were just floating on air afterwards, after she left. It was as though they could hardly come down to, to the ground. And the same thing, there was a special concert when, for the first time, I think in almost 100 years, the senior students of the the Royal Irish Academy of Music and the College of Music got together to put on a special orchestral concert in the National Concert Hall. And at very late notice, she actually came along and uh, again, the, she came through the orchestra, the members of the orchestras afterwards, and I mean, it was just like you'd give them, a, I don't know, a million pounds. I would, it just made such a difference that somebody would think that much of the occasion and somebody of, of the importance and of the dignity of Mary Robinson would think so much that she would come along and then come back and talk to them all. At the beginning of the programme, I said President Hyde was the only president I had not met. I'd been up to Ireland and looked around during President Robinson's term to tune the piano, but have not actually met President Robinson, which, in a curious way, brings the programme full circle. I finished as I started. I'll be 90 years of age in October of this year. 1997. I've had a long, full interest in life for which I am grateful. And I've been delighted and honoured to have had the opportunity to share some of my experiences with you. So now, if you'll excuse me, I had better get back to the day job. <laughs>